You are listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Everybody. This is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. Happy New Year, everybody. I'm excited to uh, be able to do this tonight, although uh, it, it is late Wednesday night. It's actually one in the morning, my time back home, but uh, I'm not back home. I am actually in downtown Vancouver, British Columbia, and I'm, I'm embarrassed to say that because I, I, I got here to the hotel about half an hour ago, so about quarter to 11 uh, local time. And I will literally be leaving this hotel. Van- I will leave, literally be leaving Vancouver tomorrow morning at 1030. So I'm going to be in the city less than 12 hours. And hopefully I will get some sleep in that time because I really need it. Uh, but um, I've got a quick meeting here in the morning. I've got someone I'm actually trying to recruit to the Strong Towns team, this really dynamic person who lives here in Vancouver. And I had a speaking engagement in Washington State and actually in Olympia today. And so uh, I, I stayed an extra day and drove up here uh, to have this meeting. Um, that didn't give me a lot of time uh, to record a podcast. I actually was going to record one Tuesday night and for a variety of reasons did not get that done. Um, I was also going to record it on the road tonight, but my voice has been so shot from uh, the speaking engagement today where I, I talked between the two things I did. I talked for almost five hours and, and had a really bad microphone in a large room. And that's a recipe for just destroying your voice, which is a, about what happened. So we're doing this one old school and I, I'm, I'm making a lot of excuses here as we go, right? Cause we're doing this one old school. It's not going to have any music, uh, any like setup, any anything like that, because I'm on the road. My podcast computer is back at the office. I actually have a brand new computer, uh, which is really fantastic, but it doesn't have any of my podcasting gear on it. So I've got the the traveling microphone, and we're gonna do it this way. And I'm gonna upload. We're gonna do it raw, like the old days, right? Like the like the original podcast way back when. Here's what I want to talk to you guys about. And this is what's been kind of going around in my mind. Because uh, over a break, I, I took a little bit of break there uh, at, the end of, uh, at the end of December, as I like to do. Uh, I, I, I listened to a, I was going to say a podcast. It wasn't a podcast series. It was a, it's from Audible. Audible has... Uh, this series called The Great Courses, and actually it's some other company, but Audible runs them too. Great Courses uh, series. It's, they're amazing. They get these great lecturers, uh, experts in their topic, and they, they give these multi-part lectures about these really, really fascinating topics. And, and I uh, listened to one called Redefining Reality. I actually just turned it on there uh, so I could get the exact title. It's called Redefining Reality. The Intellectual Implications of Modern Science. Utterly fascinating. Just mind-blowing. Uh, because it, obviously the topic is fascinating anyway, but then the lecturer was just so good. He, he was so interesting. 
he brought a, a lot of color to it. I usually listen to these things on double speed, and I had to slow this one down to one and a half speed uh, because it, the, the, the good stuff was going by like way too quickly. He was witty. He was funny. Uh, and the subject material was just incredible. But I had this kind of epiphany as I, as I went through this series, and, and I want to describe it to you and give you a little lead up to it to explain so that maybe you can share in this epiphany with me. The whole series, I want to say there was 34 different lectures, something like that. So there's quite a few. I mean, there's a lot here. But he started with uh, physics, my my favorite kind of science. In fact, I've often thought that if I did not go into uh, engineering or if I went back and like did this all over again, that I may wind up in physics because I just I, I believe it is like the most fascinating pursuit on earth today. I, I, I find it absolutely intriguing. And so he started with physics and I actually was under the impression that the whole thing was going to be about that kind of science. It wasn't. And that's part of the buildup here I want to give you. But he started with physics and he started out by giving kind of a history of where this science originated from, where it's come, the evolution of it. And he, he started out with Socrates, which I, I can't look at the word Socrates without saying Socrates, because I grew up at that period of time uh, when Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure ruined that name. I, actually, that was the very first movie I went to with my wife back when we were in junior high. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. This is a diversion, uh, in case you didn't know. And uh, at the time, like the next year, I took uh, a class on philosophy and we had to read Plato's Republic, which is fascinating. But you're talking about Socrates all the time. And I, I could not look at that without doing the really dumb Bill and Ted, uh, you know, dude, Socrates, dude, uh, kind of thing. So it, it ruined it for me forever. A uh, little cultural artifact that uh, someone in the future will maybe get a kick out of. Anyway, this lecture series starts with Socrates, with Socrates, and the whole, you know, the, the Plato illusion on the wall, the, the whole analogy that, you know, there are four things in which everything is comprised of. There's earth, there's water, there's fire, there's air, and there's kind of a natural progression um, that everything's trying to essentially reach the heavens. So if you, if you drop earth, it will, it will fall back down to earth. Uh, water will fall back down to earth, but fire is, is, you know, trying to climb up into the air and the air is trying to reach up to the heavens. And you have a, a certain kind of way of, in a base scientific way, Aristotle is describing, uh, you know, the, the, the way that they were able to view and comprehend the world at, at that time. Um, you know, a, as you, you advance up through the ages and you get, these theories from the observable world about how like the sun goes around the earth, the moon goes around the earth. Uh, this is very like evident to people at that period of time, because you, you'd, you'd look and the sun would come up, you know, in relatively the same place. It would set in the relative same place. And the next day it would appear again. And so, you know, it's pretty easy to draw a conclusion that we're the center of the center of everything and things rotate around us. And that's the way things work. Of course, it didn't explain why the sun would come up in one area and then over time would move to another area uh, and then would slide back down to where it started and go back and forth. That took a while to figure out. 
and it was really like in the Ptolemaic period, Alexandria, uh, where a, a lot of these things uh, were were developed and formalized and came through the notion that uh, maybe uh, the earth actually rotated on an axis. Uh, maybe the sun didn't go around the earth. Maybe the earth went around the sun. When they started to figure this out, it solved like a whole bunch of problems that mathematically they weren't able to uh, to really compute. People kind of figured that the earth was round. I mean, that was one of those things like Columbus proved the earth was round. Well, not not really uh, that had been proven literally a thousand years earlier or more uh, by people who surmised that the earth was round because of the, you know, the curvature, the way things were measured. They actually went out and did calculations where they figured out, okay, we know at noon when the sun is right overhead uh, that it casts this amount of shadow. Uh, we're going to go many, many miles away and measure at the same exact time and see what kind of shadow it casts there. And then we're going to do some fancy geometry and we can actually figure out like how big the earth is. And they, they did that and they were relatively like very close. So they figured all this out at a very early time. You get Copernicus comes along and starts talking about, you know, the circular motion of the planets and everything around the sun describes the solar system in a beautiful way. And you have this kind of progression of uh, knowledge in the department of the physical world based on observation, testing, theorizing, uh, testing the theory, finding the gaps, uh, trying to explain those, developing new theories, et cetera, et cetera. You get to the point where you have this breaking point uh, of this inflection point of Sir Isaac Newton. And Newton, of course, described the laws of motion. A body at rest tends to stay at rest. A body in motion tends to stay in motion. He described gravity and came up with these equations that explained a, a lot of things about the way the world worked in a novel, uh, very insightful way that, that had not been done before. Essentially, all these problems that had been kind of building up with the standard way of looking things prompted Newton to ask like a whole bunch of questions that were answered in these, you know, the laws of motion and uh, the equations that Newton used to describe the world. He, he was famous for doing a bunch of experiments to kind of develop his theories and, and flesh them out and then prove that he could, with his equations and with his notions of how the world worked, uh, predict things that would happen in the physical world, the way forces interacted with each other, falling objects, this kind of thing. This was a revolution, right? This changed everything. And, and Newton uh, is, is referred to as a genius historically because he took something that didn't exist and, and brought it into the world and defined reality in a way that it hadn't been defined before. It was an inflection point. And we began to apply Newton's laws to things like the motion of planets. And they were able to describe uh, to, you know, a high degree uh, the way that things worked in the physical world. But there were a lot of things that didn't make a whole lot of sense, right? There were, there were, there were places on the margin where these equations started to break down. They didn't really describe the world. Now, when you go back to Copernicus, who said you have circular motion in the, in, in the solar system, uh, Newton explained why that isn't the case, right? Why it is an elliptical orbit. Uh, the idea that, you know, you build up some momentum and then 
uh, gravity pulls you back in and you build up momentum the other way and you have these elliptical orbits. And so Newton like solved a whole bunch of these outstanding problems. But over time after Newton, more and more problems started to crop up. More things that could not be explained by the Newtonian view of the world. What happened next? The next big inflection point, of course, is Einstein, right? Einstein, this guy who got out of college, uh, you know, and, and couldn't get a job because he was such a slacker and such a smart ass. And, uh, you know, all his classmates got jobs and he couldn't. And so he wound up working in a patent office where you, you know, I, I think about this a lot. I think, you know, it, what would have happened if Einstein would have gotten like a, a physics job somewhere doing, you know, applied physics or theoretical physics work and, and had like all these important tasks that he was doing day in and day out by someone instead of essentially being locked away with his own brain uh, at a, at a patent clerk's office filing patents and having all this time to essentially think through the way the world worked. You know, th this is a guy who wrote five papers in a year, three of which absolutely changed the entire trajectory of science. Would those things have happened uh, if this guy hadn't essentially been sequestered away, uh, but it but it followed a more traditional career path? That makes me wonder if we shouldn't all, you know, experience a, a year sequestered away uh, just to see what brilliance arises. Nonetheless, um, Einstein you know, came up with the, the his theory of relativity. It, it, it the first one became known as the special theory. Uh, a, a decade and a half later, he developed the general theory. These were brilliant, brilliant inflection points uh, again in science. I, I I love the um the story, and it may be apocryphal. I don't know, but the story of Einstein, uh, you know, leaving the pub one night and and turning around to look at the clock and see what the clock on the tower said the time was and, and realizing that he was not viewing the time as it currently was, but he was viewing the time that it was uh, back when the light reflected off the, uh, the, 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 the clock. Now the speed of light is really fast. It's an infinitesimally small uh, amount of time that elapsed between the time the light hit the clock and the time it entered Einstein's eyes. But yet he was in a frame of mind to realize that some time had elapsed and that if he were able to move away from this clock at, you know, whatever speed that was, that time would travel, time would be measured differently than if he were traveling toward the clock. He would actually register the time at a different pace. And in fact, if he were traveling away from the clock at near the speed of light, time would seem to change very, very slowly from his uh, relative position, right? This is special relativity. Time all of a sudden uh, is not a constant anymore. There's a fourth dimension now to the universe. Besides the three dimensions of space, there's also the dimension of time. Uh, uh, utterly fascinating and, and completely changed uh, the way that science viewed the world. And it's fascinating because when he came out with these papers and these theories, you know, there was all the pushback from uh, the, the established Newtonians uh, who thought, you know, these ideas were crazy. Uh, but over time, in a, in a very short period of time, really, uh, for scientific revolutions, 
they were they were so logical and so self-evident. One of the other um, things that I found just fascinating about the, the Einstein story is how when he developed the, the the original theory, what became known as the special theory, because it only applied in some special instances. Uh, what what they found was that there was you know it applied in this very narrow realm, but there was these generally you know larger kind of paradigm that this kind of thinking would apply to, and Einstein sat down and tried to figure that out. Um, you know the 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 theory had a lot of implications that when he published it hadn't really been fully thought through. I mean they they still have not today really uh, in many ways, but certainly back then this was all new and, and they were saying, well, how does it apply to this? And how does it apply to that? And one of the things that, uh, that Einstein faced was this problem that, uh, you know, space has, uh, according to the, the theory. And as you start to work through the mathematics, you, you figure out that space actually has a, a curvature to it. Time creates these curvatures in space and, he couldn't do the math. Uh, we think of Einstein as, as brilliant for, for all the right reasons. Right. But he couldn't actually do the math. He wasn't good enough at mathematics to be able to calculate, uh, some of these, uh, spherical equations that you would need to do to measure the things that he needed. So he actually had to go and be tutored in math, uh, by, you know, some brilliant people. Uh, and I'm not suggesting that Einstein was not good at math. I mean, this is a very highly specialized, uh, you know, form of mathematics, but, but basically he had to go like figure out how to do this. So he could continue to work on the general theory of relativity. The general theory of relativity, of course, is the one we now know as E equals MC squared. It was the one that, uh, equated energy with mass and said that, uh, these things exist on a paradigm. Of course, this led to quantum mechanics, uh, quantum mechanics, uh, led to, you know, the exploration of the atom and, uh, you know, you get into things like quantum fields and quantum field theory and just really like bizarre notions that, you know, you are not really a solid, uh, but you exist essentially as a collection of quantum fields kind of fused together. Uh, you, you exist in a state of being that is a field uh, not, you know, a, a solid object the way we think of it today in three-dimensional or even four-dimensional space. These are just bizarre, like radical ideas. And I'm, I'm, there's probably someone who knows physics who's like rolling their eyes at me right now because I'm not grasping all the concepts. I, I fully acknowledge that I am not a physicist and I do not grasp this more than just someone who is a fan of, of people who grasp this stuff, right? It's not material to the point. What's material to the point is that you can look from Socrates and Aristotle up through Copernicus and through Newton and through Einstein and now to conversations of quantum fields and string theory. And you can see that when all these questions are being asked because things don't work out, right? We have this theory. We go out and test it. There's anomalies. Things don't necessarily work. What do we do? We have to develop more theories and, and that explain everything that's happened before plus this new stuff, right? That is the way that science progresses. And, and you can see in the field of physics how we have gone from the very, very basic of, you know, here's what we view in the world. Here's how we explain it 
you know, earth, water, air, fire, right? Up to quantum field theory, where you are a collection of these quantum fields at the cellular level. Uh, This is a huge, huge uh, maturing process in terms of our knowledge. Now, in this lecture series, that whole thing brought us to like lecture 13 or 14. And, and I'm salivating, right? Because I'm looking at the thing going, there's 30 some lectures here. We just got to the really like cool stuff and we're only in lecture 14. I can't wait to see what comes next because I'm thinking he's going to continue on with physics and we're going to get astrophysics and we're going to get, you know, into things that I've never even heard of before. I'm thinking this is going to go to crazy places like that. No, it didn't. He started talking about chemistry, uh, you know, go, doing the same kind of thing, going back to like alchemy and bringing it up through, uh, you know, how we discovered air and discovered, um, you know, that there's good air and bad air and, you know, good air contains oxygen. We, we, you know, we discovered that there's different types of air and there's different things within the atmosphere. And then, you know, we were able to isolate different chemicals. And then we figured out that, you know, there's, there's all these, uh, you know, different types of molecules, uh, that, that, you know, combine together and, and it essentially came up with chemical equations. And there's a, a whole like narrative, uh, just like there was with physics, with chemistry. He then does the same thing with biology, right? You go back to, uh, people uh, dissecting animals and dissecting uh, humans and, and you get anatomy and basic like understanding of, of how things work. Uh, you bring that all the way up through Darwin and you know, the, the whole origin of species and the theory of evolution and how that was this like radical uh, different understanding of how the world worked and how things changed and, and transformed over time. You get into molecular biology the discovery of DNA and, 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 you know, up through genetics and, and all these like fascinating things that go along with, uh, with biology. He moved on to things like psychology and sociology. And there was this same like broad palette trajectory of how we went from very like neophyte, very like basic kind of what we would almost today call backward, except these people were brilliant back then too, but right. But they'd only been exposed to certain things. Their jumping off point was so much different than our jumping off point today. Right. But you can see this whole like evolution of thought that takes place. Then he got to economics, the, the dismal science, right? And here was my epiphany because I'm not going to pretend I'm an economist. I'm, I'm, I'm not an economist. I have read dozens of books on economics. I probably, I, I don't, I don't know how many books on economics you read when you get an economics degree. Uh, but I've never like been subjected to having to do tests or, you know, write essays or what have you. It's a hobby, right? It's, it's one of those things that I've been fascinated in and I've, I've tried to immerse myself in and, and learn as much as I can, but I'm, I'm not an economist. I'm not going to pretend I'm an economist. But in the context of this lecture series where you're getting uh, basically like the sweeping history 
of all of these different sciences and the implications of them and the depths of them and how different problems arose and were solved with this new theory. But that new theory created these other like unsolved problems and that led rise to this other theory. And you see like the great struggle of humanity to try to figure these things out over time. And when you get to the dismal science, when you get to economics, what was startling to me was how little there is, how little there is. I mean, basically, he started with, you know, Adam Smith, the description of markets and what have you. We get into business cycle theory, uh, which business cycle theory is, you know, the notion that uh, there's a circular kind of flow uh, to the way economies work. Um, You know, people demand goods. uh, That demand raises the price of existing goods because people want them when the price goes up. People realize that they can produce more, so they invest in producing more. Uh, that creates uh, more supply. Uh, when you get so much supply, uh, there's too much supply, and so the price goes way down. Uh, you have you know, a, 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 a mini recession. People lose jobs. Businesses close because they, they overproduce and they misread the market. That decreases the supply, and then all of a sudden the price goes up because the demand is there. And you, you have this cycle like repeat over and over again. And for, for a long period of time, that was how we described uh, economics. That's the way we described how the world worked. Uh, we had these boom and bust cycles, right? The business cycle, business cycle theory. There's this, right? And, and then the next thing he describes is Keynes, <laughs> which, you know, you, you get to uh, World War One. You have the Weimar inflation, you have the Great Depression, you have uh, all the, 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 the problems that, you know, England had where Keynes was with, with uh, kind of the, uh, the cost of empire and the, you know, how to pay for World War I um, and, and, and all the kind of consternation that went on with that. And you had emerging from this Keynes's kind of great theory uh, and great equation that discovered uh, or explained macroeconomics, uh, how markets worked and how imports and exports related to GDP. Uh, you know, the, the, these uh, these kind of great equations that have come to be like the basis of modern economics. He then gets like briefly into the monetary you know, monetarists and, and essentially, you know, the, the, the Milton Friedman's of the world and that kind of thing, the, all the back and forth about setting interest rates and, uh, trying to arrest the boom bust cycle and smooth, uh, the flow of the economy in an upward way. And then it just ends. It just ends. The discussion just ends. And the epiphany that I had, or the, 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 the realization that I had is that the rigor and the testing and the theories and, and, and the way we go about dealing with the, the other sciences, if you want to say the hard sciences, right? Because sometimes economics is called a soft science. Although when you look at things like psychology and sociology, you know, particularly in psychology, there, there's some hard science kind of experiments that people do. Right. I mean, there's a you see all these experiments where they'll go out and they'll say, you know, 
we're, we're going to, you know, set up a lab experiment and have people do this and, and control for these different things. And it's, it's, it is very much, I mean, I think if you said it's a soft science, it, it could make a really good argument that it's not because they come up with theories and they go out and test them. They develop experiments to do it in, in economics. This lecture series confirmed a, a lot of what I personally feel and believe, and maybe I'm doing some confirmation bias here, right? But it, it, it just ended, it ended and the abruptness of how it ended left me saying, well, you know, what, what comes next? Like, what is there? What, it, it felt like we were in the, you know, that Keynes is the Isaac Newton of economics and, and that, you know, where's the Einstein, where's the, of quantum field theory, where's string theory? Where, you know, where where is the new thought? In, in the Great Recession, in the recession in two thousand eight, there was this whole uh, kind of notion that we needed to avoid the Great Depression, and and there was a whole line of thinking that boy, we're lucky we have Ben Bernanke at the Federal Reserve because. Ben Bernanke is a student of the depression. He like did his dissertation on the depression. He studied the depression. He's an expert in the depression. If there's anyone who has learned the lessons of the great depression, it's Ben Bernanke. And, and, you know, we go and we say, okay, well, you know, the, the policies that we did, the zero interest rates, which we've just now ended after seven, almost eight years, uh, quantitative easing where we, uh, printed money and used it to buy up toxic assets and, and, you know, uh, other things in the marketplace to kind of spur the economy. We look back at all these things and, in, in, you know, being generous, um, we can say this kept us out of a, a worst, a worse economic downturn. It kept us out of a worse depression or what have you. And certainly, you know, I haven't read Ben Bernanke's book, but when I've read about it and you see, you know, Courage to Act is the title of it, you, you get the sense that, you know, there's this heroic notion that we applied this theory to how things worked and, and here we are, right? But it, this lecture series kind of reaffirmed to me, or at least put in my mind uh, more even securely that we're like in the infant days of economics. If economics is truly a science and, and, you know, economics is so intertwined with politics. I mean, you get, you get Bernanke, uh, you know, uh, last month being interviewed by the Freakonomics people. Uh, and, and he said in that interview, and I'm going to paraphrase him and I'm going to say it in a more crass way. Uh, he said it in a more, you know, elegant kind of way, but he basically said like, look, I couldn't go out and speak honestly about the economy. Uh, the economy looked horrible. There were all kinds of these bad things going on. I couldn't go speak poorly about it because I'm part of the administration. I've got to talk up the economy. That's part of my job. And, and you think, well, okay, <laughs> you know, uh, do we want these kind of policymakers, the ones that are supposed to be essentially disinterested in the politics um, you know, uh, the, the people who are supposed to take the punch bowl away, uh, when the party gets going, right. That's the, that's what they say about the federal reserve. You know, you're the one who takes the punch bowl away when the economy gets going. Um, you know, do you want those people telling you the propaganda from the current administration, whichever one that is, or, or, or do you want them actually telling you the, the truth as they see it? Um, 
economics is so intertwined with politics today that it's really hard to call it a hard science, right? There's a, there's a lot of debates. In fact, the econ recent episode of econ talk had this very conversation, you know, is economics a science or is it not? I, I would say that it is. Um, and I might've said that it's not before listening to this lecture series, but today after listening to this lecture series, I would say that it is, but I would say it is, uh, you know, current economic practice is, uh, you know, in the arc of what physics is to Newton, right? It, we, we have a, we have a long ways to go before we get to any truths. Newton explained a, a whole ton of things and brought us a, a long ways forward and could explain like, you know, most of the things that we saw in the physical world could be explained by Newton and Newton's equations. But there were all these kind of anomalies that could not be explained and did not hold truth and, 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 and led us to understand that there was some shortcoming in Newton's equations. I see the same thing in our economy today and I see the same thing in our economics. And, and, and really, you know, you go back to the 1970s and the idea was you cannot have rising unemployment and rising inflation, right? The two balance each other out. You're going to either have inflation or you're going to have uh, unemployment. You're never going to have the two. And then lo and behold, the 1970s, what did we have? We had stagflation. You had a stagnant economy, you had high inflation, and you had high unemployment. How is that possible under our current theory? It didn't make any sense. Like it was this weird anomaly. You go through today and you, you say, okay, uh, you know, we don't have high inflation. We have very low inflation, at least the way we go about measuring it. Uh, you know, we, if you listen to the people at the Federal Reserve, or, you know, a whole like strain of economists, even though the stock market is at these like historic highs, not just in raw numbers, but in terms of like uh, price to book ratio, price to earning ratio, all these things, they say, oh no, we have not had asset inflation, right? Quantitative easing, the printing of money, the pumping money into the financial system has not artificially inflated assets. We do not have an asset bubble. You go back to 2001 when we lowered interest rates and we pumped money into housing and we created what we commonly just call a housing bubble, right? And even some economists now call it a housing bubble. But at the time, uh, we were not willing to call that inflation, asset inflation, uh, you know, as created by our monetary policy. We, we were not calling it that. Um, we still don't even call it that in retrospect, right? We, we call it a, a bubble. Um, and note, we've got housing prices back up to where they were uh, pre-recession. We're not calling it a bubble now either, right? We're just calling it uh, a, a normalization of prices as if bubble is normal, right? One of the other parts of this lecture series talked about ecology. And, and as I was thinking about the economics part, um, I started to think about the ecology part too. And, and it occurred to me that, and I've used the, the analogy before of ecological systems being self-emergent, right? They, 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 they emerge out of complex interactions between many different things. Uh, this being a good analogy for the economy, right? You know, ecology is more than just 
counting the number of plants in a forest, right? We, we wouldn't look at uh, an ecosystem and say, well, let's count the number of birds and let's count the number of, uh, of, of predators and let's count the number of a certain type of plant. And that will tell us whether this is a, a healthy ecosystem or not, right? We understand intuitively that there's a certain uh, interaction that goes on uh, between all these things that is more important than the things themselves. We know that in an ecological system, uh, you can't just go out and say, add fertilizer or add sunlight or add water and adjust those and, and get like the right kind of ecosystem, right? We know that ecosystems will adapt to different stimulus and different inputs and they'll react in strange and unpredictable ways. You know, sometimes they react in, in very predictable ways, but sometimes things will happen that we don't exactly foresee or understand. From an ecology standpoint, we become, particularly when you get into the environmental movement uh, and, and others who are advocating for certain types of policies, we come, we've become very sensitive to the notion that human beings, uh, while we can affect ecology and we can infect, uh, uh, you know, affect the environment in positive ways, we really can't control it in a, in a, in a macro sense or a micro sense beyond just essentially like leaving it alone to evolve. We can set up frameworks. We can set up conditions. We can nudge things in one direction or another. Uh, we can destroy things and start over. Right. But we understand that kind of in an ideal sense, an ecology is a natural emergent kind of thing. When we get to the economy, that thinking totally goes away, right? That thinking completely vanishes. And we fall back into what I think is, I described it as the, the, the Newton kind of notion, a, a very like basic, but from an ecology standpoint, we fall back into, I think the notion that we had, you know, earlier, you know, in the middle of the last, early in the middle of the last century, where it's okay, uh, let's stop every forest fire because if we stop every forest fire, we can keep bad forest fires from happening and we can now go and build in all these places. And what we didn't understand is that when we stopped the forest fire, we stopped the natural systems of nature from renewing. And we wound up with these massive out of control conflagrations, not to mention a real screwed up, uh, kind of bastardized version of forests and forest ecology, right? We, we, we get this now. We're sensitive to this. We understand this. I feel like when it comes to the economic realm, we're still in the mindset of putting out forest fires, right? We're still using F equals MA to describe the entire universe, even when we can see that F equals MA doesn't work in like a whole bunch of different situations, right? I've been thinking about this a, a lot. And then today, this morning, as I'm kind of, you know, getting ready to, uh, to go, um, I came across this video on CNBC from, a, a, of a guy of an interview with a guy named Richard Fisher. Now, Richard Fisher is, for those of you who don't know him, uh, he's a former federal reserve official. He, he, he would be like the right wings favorite one, you, you know, like on the Supreme court, 
everybody who's kind of actively involved in politics has their favorite Supreme Court justice, right? Like, oh, I really like Scalia, or I really like Thomas, and that kind of defines you in a certain way, or I really like Breyer, or I really like Souter. That that defines you in, in a completely different way, right? And everybody kind of has their, their favorite Supreme Court justice. You could, you could apply the same thing to some degree to the Federal Reserve as well. People have their favorite Federal Reserve officials, uh, because the Federal Reserve is a, is a, you know, is a mixing of people and people rotate on and off the Federal Open Market Committee and they have minutes that now we can get to read and we get to see who thinks what. And, and there are certain people who are, uh, you know, uh, hawks in one way and doves in another way. And you get the whole kind of, uh, you know, political kind of game that goes on. That's, that's not supposed to go on. Right. But that does. And so I'm 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 setting I'm saying this because I I don't want any of you to listen and say well Chuck you're quoting Fisher here and Fisher's some right wing ideologue and and that makes you a right wing ideologue I, I'm I'm going into this fully with eyes wide open understanding who Richard Fisher is but Richard Fisher is a a, a former guy in the Federal Open Market Committee he was one of the people uh you know voting on monetary policy. When, when the great recession happened, he voted for QE one, he voted for QE two. He supported these policies. He, he, this is not some like radical, insane bomb throwing right wing flaming guy. Uh, this is a guy who, uh, does not agree with current policy and, uh, in doing so, um, you know, it, it is, is more liked by the, the Ron Paul kind of crowd, uh, the people who don't like the Fed, he, he's more liked them than, you know, Ben Bernanke, who thinks the Fed is is great and saved the world. Right. So I, 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 I know who Richard Fisher is. I listened to this interview with him and he said some just amazing things, some 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 fascinating, fascinating things. And I, I'm going to read you a quote from Richard Fisher because it it kind of ties in with what I've been saying about, you know, this, the dismal science and us being in a very Newtonian early kind of stage of this. Let me, let me read this quote from Richard Fisher. Here it is. Quote, I spent 10 years as a participant in the deliberations of the federal open market committee setting monetary policy for the U S the purpose of zero interest rates engineered by the FOMC together with the massive asset purchases of treasuries and agency securities known as quantitative easing was to create a wealth effect for the real economy by jumpstarting the bond and equity markets. Now I want to pause right there. There's more. And I got two more paragraphs I want to read to you, but I just want to pause right there because this whole notion of creating a wealth effect is one that was like hotly debated, right? And, and, there were people and, and I'm, a, I'm sympathetic to them. I'm, I'm among them who thinks that this thing, th- this statement, this notion, if not, Im- if not more, you know, I, I was going to say is criminal. It's not criminal. It's, it's, it's like deeply immoral, right? I, I find this to be like frustratingly immoral, right? The idea that we would create a, a wealth effect. We can call this, um, you know, to me, this is the worst of what the trickle down notion would be, right? We make a bunch of people feel wealthy by artificially inflating their assets and inflating their home per- prices. 
Uh, we do this artificially because then they feel wealthy and then they go out and spend more money. Uh, and that will eventually trickle down to where the poor schlub on the street who can't find a job and is in 99 weeks into his unemployment benefits can get a job at Walmart, right? I, I find this to be incredibly patronizing and, and really like a disgusting application of our policy. Yet this is, you know, where the Newtonian Keynesian kind of thinking gets us, right? We, we, we have these tools. Uh, we are looking at this in a macro sense. We're going out and counting in an ecology stance sense. We're counting the number of birds and the number of plants. And we're saying, okay, here's how we can create this great ecological system. We'll add fertilizer here and water here and we'll create uh, in economic terms, a wealth effect, and that will trickle down to everybody else and everything will be great. I, I find this mindlessly uh, uh, simplistic and, uh, you know, immoral to the, the borderline of, in my mind, being, you know, almost criminal, right? Uh, especially when you realize that the wealth effect means a bunch of bankers who <laughs> were exploiting people get very rich. Let me go on. Here's, I'm going to continue to quote Fisher. Quote, the impact we had expected for the economy and for the markets was achieved. By February of 2009, the Fed had repurchased, had purchased, excuse me, over $1 trillion in securities. With interest rates throughout the yield curve moving in the direction of eventually resting at the lowest levels in 239 years of history, the stock market reacted. It bottomed in the first week of March of 2009 and then rose dramatically through 2014. The addition of a third round of QE, which had the Fed buying $85 billion per month of securities to ultimately expand its balance sheet to over $4.5 trillion, juiced the markets. I know that was a lot. Basically, let me summarize what he said. He said, look, uh, we went out, we lowered interest rates, we bought tons of securities, we pumped lots of money into the market and it had the effect. We juiced the markets. We, we made the markets go. We revived them, right? They were, they were failing. Uh, you know, you can think of it in like a medical sense. Uh, we warmed up the, uh, the heart thing and gave them, you know, everybody clear shock, bam, shocked it back into work and it, and it worked. We did it right. This is, this is again, standard Keynesian, uh, counter cyclical kind of behavior, right? When the, when the economy, uh, goes into recession, people's natural impulse is to save when people save, they don't spend when this, they don't spend the money goes for, you know, the economy goes further into recession. And so the government can step in, in this case, the federal reserve can step in, uh, fill that gap and essentially kickstart the economy. He's saying we did that. We juiced the markets. Let me go on. Uh, th this is, I think is the last paragraph I wanted to read. And it's the one that drove me crazy. Here's Richard Fisher, quote, I voted against QE3, but the majority of the committee embraced it. One could argue, as I did, that QE3 and its predecessor rounds front-loaded the equity market. Stated differently, I believe we engineered a version of the, quote, wimpy philosophy. We gave stock market investors two hamburgers today in exchange for one or none tomorrow. We pulled forward the price reaction function of markets. Let me break this down just a little bit. The wimpy philosophy. I, I've, I've never heard of this before, but it, what he's referring to, and I, I realize this because I actually use this analogy uh, last year and a whole like broad swath of people didn't get what this was because they're not old enough. <laughs> wimpy 
uh, there was a there was an old cartoon when I was growing up, and it was old when I was growing up, uh, called Popeye. Popeye the Sailor Man. And if you actually go look at these, they're they're incredibly like sexist and uh, just really stupid. And there's a reason why they're not on the air today, because they would just be deeply embarrassing for anyone who would broadcast them because of how just dumb and ignorant they are. But there was this character in Popeye called Wimpy. His name was Wimpy. And Wimpy uh, had this shtick that he would do where he would say, I will gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today. And that was kind of his line. And he would always show up in the episodes and he would say, well, I, I'll gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today. Um, and what he's what what Fisher is suggesting here is that we use the, the wimpy philosophy where we gave the stock market investors two hamburgers today in exchange for none tomorrow. Right. L- let me let me crystallize this for you in, in, in by going back and talking about cash for clunkers. Because cash for clunkers is probably like the easiest way to understand this. This is basically what we've done for years, but cash for clunkers is like the retail version of this, right? So what did we do in cash for clunkers? We said, if you've got an old junky car, uh, we need the money spent now. We don't want you to hunker down through this recession. We don't want you to put off buying a car because you're not sure about your future job prospects. That, that, that's all going to be bad for the economy. That's all going to, you know, in this Keynesian way, uh, that what that's going to do is that's going to create, um, you know, the, this depression of demand and we need to get animal spirits going back again. So what we need you to do is not do what's in your selfish self-interest. We need you to do what's good for the whole and go out and spend. So we want you to buy a car. So what we're going to do is we're going to create a bunch of financial incentives so that you will get rid of your junky car and go buy a new car. And lots of people did, right? Lots of people did. And, you know, in, in, in subsequent years, we've done all kinds of other crazy things, not only low interest rates to try to attract people to buy cars, but gosh, we've extended loans. Now I actually saw, I said on counselor's podcast last month that I saw a 72 month auto loan and I did. And I thought that was insane, right? Like who is going to have a 72 month auto loan, a brand new car, you know, I, I don't know. You'd have to drive it hardly at all to have it have any value after 72 months. And then I saw an 84-month auto loan, right? 84 months, seven years. I don't think I've ever owned a car for seven years. Oh, I take that back. The one I've got now, I've owned 11 years. <laughs> but I've milked it so much. Um, I'm such a cheapskate. Uh, but, you know, 11, seven years... Uh, to be making car payments on a car is just an obscenely long amount of time, right? What are we doing with these programs? What we're doing is we're taking consumption that would happen normally in the future and we're bringing it forward to today in order to kickstart the economy and get us out of the current recession, right? And that's what Fisher's saying. He's saying, we, you know, we exchanged, we, we got two people to buy today. One might have bought today and one might have bought tomorrow, but we brought both of those up to today to buy today because we need to get out of the recession today. Well, the implications of that uh, are that in the future, both people are going to have cars and they're not going to need to buy one, right? So at some point in the future, uh, there's going to be like a depressed demand for cars, right? What he, what he said, the last line there is, we pulled forward the price reaction function of markets. 
we juiced the market, right? We, we, we brought forward all this consumption that was going to happen in the future. We brought it forward to today. That's essentially what debt is, right? We're consuming today instead of consuming tomorrow. And when you bring that forward, what happens is that at some point you reach tomorrow, right? And you have to not consume to pay back the debt. This is where I think our theories like all fall apart and all fall down, right? Because the, 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 the standard reaction, and we've been in this mode for decades now, for a couple of decades at least, the standard reaction when we get to that point in the future, because what happens then is we get another recession, right? When, when people get to the point where, okay, we can't take on more debt, we have to actually pay some of this stuff back, we're over-indebted, then, oh no, we need programs to try to create more debt, more uh, economic growth, uh, we're going to spend more money, borrow more money, et cetera, et cetera, right? At some point, this is going to all come to bear. And what Fisher's saying is that now we're kind of entering into that period of time. That's hotly debated. Uh, obviously, you can listen to CNBC all day and 95% of the people they have on there will say the opposite. Uh, if you go back to, um, you know, 2006 and 2007 and as economists, you know, look and see, you know, what their projections were for the future of the economy. Even when we were in the depression, or the, the great recession, the beginning in 2008, the Federal Reserve's projections, when we were in the middle of a, you know, the, 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 the beginning of the deep, deep parts of this recession, uh, they were saying, we're not in a recession and we're projecting, you know, good, decent growth going forward in the future, right? We didn't see that coming. We're not seeing this coming. And the idea is that uh, we'll just, you know, counteract it by spending more money. Here's where I think we're at. And I'm I'm, I'm going to say this, you know, fully known that I've, I've lost a lot of you by this point because... A lot of you buy into the Keynesian theory. This, you know, you 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 look at this and say, "Well, this is not the Newton uh, of economics. This is the string theory of economics." And we've reached the promised land. I I'm a you know Krugman acolyte, and when Krugman stands up and speaks with absolute confidence that he knows, you know, end this recession now. Here's how you do it. I have the answer. I'm a hundred percent confident uh, that I know everything about economics. Um, you know, you, you you believe that you've found the answer. I'm suggesting that I don't think you have. I, I think you're back in the, the Newtonian kind of dark ages. And not only are you using the wrong theory, but you're not even asking the questions like, why is our theory not working? Uh, is it really because we haven't tried it hard enough? Or is it maybe just not comport to emergent reality, Right. I'm going to put forward that we're in a very strange world, right? We're in a very strange time. Um, we focus at Strong Towns uh, on the financial impacts of our development pattern and how, why our cities are going broke, why they're struggling, why this economic model doesn't make sense in our blocks and in our neighborhoods, right? And whether you think it makes sense on a macro level or not, it, it, it clearly does not make sense in our blocks and in our neighborhoods and in our cities. It's, it's not working, right? I think we need to rethink our equations. I think we need to rethink our assumptions. I think in the words of Nassim Taleb, we need to probe uncertainty. And the way we do that uh, is by making little bets, by going back to basics, by rethinking our assumptions 
And by essentially acknowledging that the paradigm that we've got is not working. Now, the paradigm we've got, the answer to all these problems is to make bigger bets, right? Uh, if QE4 didn't work, or QE3 didn't work, then we need QE4. And if QE3 was only, you know, $85 billion a month, maybe we need $150 billion a month. Um, you know, the, the, the current model is just to keep upping uh, what we've done in the past because we're so convinced that the model works. We just need to do more and more of it. I'm really struck by kind of the dichotomy between the notion that we can just do more and do it bigger, build wider roads, build more interchanges, have bigger stimulus packages, uh, go out and spend more money on this current system, propping it up. And the idea that when we actually get down to the ecology of it, right? When we stop like counting the the birds and the plants and the predators, and we actually like get down and live in the forest, that it's a completely different world, right? It, the, the understanding that you get is completely different. And I'm, I'm more and more convinced, I, I'm more convinced each day that from an economic standpoint, we need to spend more time at the ground level, right? We spend more time asking some hard questions about the emergent properties of local economies. And I think we need to have more respect for the fact that our economy is not a, a, a national economy that we can direct and, and have trickle down and have that work at the local level where your trickle down involves tax cuts and, and, you know, businesses, you know, large corporations or whether your trickle down involves government programs and, and stimulus bills and federal reserve spending. Right. It, it, I don't care what your brand of trickle down is. I, I think we are fooling ourselves if we think that that is, that makes an economy. I, I, I think it makes an economy as much as, uh, you know, top-down management of uh, of a forest creates an ecology, right? It, it doesn't. It doesn't. I think we need to be a little bit more humble and start pursuing these uh, the, these these divergences from our theories more seriously by going back to the local level, by looking at how complex economies are emergent and finding ways to create those frameworks to replicate that and allow that to build up to a greater whole. I, you know, the stock market today went down like 250 points. It went down like 200 some yesterday as well. I'm not one of these people who, you know, frets about that because quite frankly, I don't own any stocks. Like I, I got out of stock market investing a, a long time ago because I realized that I, I did not know enough to be a stock market investor. If you're going to invest in the stock market today, you're essentially investing in what the Federal Reserve wants to have happen. And I don't know what that is. And what I do think I know seems absolutely insane to me. And I, I can't invest in ways that I think are insane. So I don't own any stocks, right? So I'm not saying this from like a vested standpoint. I don't sit and look at the stock market and think that it's any reflection of reality. But what it is a reflection of is our perception of what the government is going to do. That's not a market, right? 
That's not a market. <laughs> That's not a market. A market is not one that hinges on, uh, you know, what the next Federal Reserve uh, action is going to be. What what comes out in the FMOC minutes is it's not a market, right? Markets are you and me. Uh, it's it's the things going on on Main Street. It's the things going on up the block. Those are those are markets, and. In going through this lecture series, it just really, really struck home to me that the impressions I have about, I'm going to use the word infantile, but I, I really, I, I'm not suggesting that it's infantile because Newton wasn't infantile, right? It was, it was mature for, for its time. I feel like our notion of economics and our system of economics is mature for its time but from a historical context, is still in its infancy, right? I, I think 100 years from now, they'll still teach Keynes, right? I, I think they'll still teach Keynes. But I think they'll teach Keynes as a pathway to understanding what didn't work and then explain something better, right? And if you ask me what that was today, I, I don't know. I, I think it starts with... Uh, the the ideas of Nassim Taleb, quite frankly. I think it starts with anti-fragile. And I think it starts with uh, the notion of fat tails and the whole black swan notion. I, I, I think that the next stage of economics starts there. But I don't know how. And I don't know where it goes. And I, I don't know where it ends. But I think it's important for us to acknowledge that we don't know today. Now I want to I give you one last thing and then we're going to wrap up here. Uh, because this isn't just a, a rant for me on, on economics. Um, I, when it comes to cities and it comes to the places we build, th there's so much at stake here. And there's so much going on because all of our cities require continuous accelerating levels of growth in order to make good on all the promises they've made. If we're going to maintain the streets, if we're going to maintain uh, the pipes, if we're going to have parks, if we're going to maintain fire departments and police departments, if we're going to have a library, all of these things in our current model require accelerating levels of growth, not more growth year after year, but accelerating levels of growth, right? It's got to be exponentially growing or these promises we made just are, are not going to be, we're not, we're not going to keep them. One of the series of promises that we've made in my home state of Minnesota is to government employees in terms of pensions. And you can look and we're one of, we, we've basically made this a statewide obligation. If you work for a city, uh, if you work for a county, if you work for the state, you pay into the state, state pension fund. Teachers have their own, but pretty much all other employees, government employees pay into the, the state pension fund. We have one of the best pension funds in the country in terms of being funded, right? We, we're more solvent than most. Uh, I, I want to say at the last time I saw it, we were like 30% underfunded, 35% underfunded. So we have a huge gap, um, but we're better off than most, right? I mean, that was the way the story was spun is like, yeah, we're pretty screwed, but we're way better off than most people, right? Most states are way worse than we are. Totally agreed. But our, you know, not as bad as you uh, is still 30% underfunded. The remarkable thing about this 
is that it's 30% underfunded, assuming 8.5% returns per year. Now, 8.5% returns, I, I, don't, I, I don't know how many of you grasp the implications of that, right? But if you're a pension fund, you're not invested in high flying stuff, right? You're, you, you, you're not, you're the notion of the way you invest is fairly conservative, right? You're a pension fund. You're not going out investing in, in every dot com crazy thing. You're not doing IPOs. You're not doing startups. You've, you've got a fairly conservative mix in your portfolio, right? What's a conservative mix? Well, well, I, I would, I would, you know, Historically, a growth mix is 60-40 bond stocks, right? A conservative mix would be even more conservative than that, right? 70-30, 80-20. You'd have a lot of cash. You'd have a lot of bonds. And when you bought equities, you would be buying things that had dividends and a, a, a certain degree of stability because you've made all these promises and you're not out gambling. You're not trying to strike it rich. You're just trying to run a conservative pension fund, right? Let's say that 60% of your portfolio is bonds. Bonds right now are insane, right? Um, if, if you are going to invest in something that is secure, let's say a treasury, U.S. Treasury, you're not going to get any yield at all, right? It's not going to pay hardly anything. The only way you get any appreciable yield is if you buy really, really long-term instruments. And by really long-term instruments, I mean you're locking yourself in to get, you know, 4%, 4.5% interest rates. You're locking yourself in for 30 years. You look back 30 years and we've had interest rates as high as, you know, 15%. The idea that you would lock yourself in at 4.5% over the next 30 years is, is really, really risky, and by risky, what I mean is that uh, if, if you have a $100 bond paying 4.5% and interest rates rise and the 30-year treasury goes to uh, 9%, so doubles, you still have a $100 bond paying 4.5%. I can go out and buy a $100 bond paying 9%. When you go to sell yours in the marketplace, you're not going to get 100 bucks for it, right? You're going to get less. So when interest rates go up, bond funds lose money, lose money. So you're sitting there running your pension fund and you have the lowest bond yields, as Richard Fisher said, in 239 years. How in the world are you going to get eight and a half percent on your portfolio? How in the world, if you are already 30% underfunded in your pension plan, are you going to get 8.5% yield to keep treading water at 30% underfunded, right? Where is that going to come from? Is it going to come from massively crazy speculative bets? Are you going to buy junk bonds? Are you going to like lever up and try to hedge and play options games and stuff like that? You know, what kind of risky, risky stuff are you going to do? When you step back and you realize that one of two things has to happen, either one, our pension funds in this country are going to do some incredibly risky, crazy, crazy things to try to make up lost ground, in which case a lot of them are not going to be winners in that game of roulette, right? Or they're going to have much lower yields, much lower performing than what they're projecting, and the, the gaps are going to be huge. This is one aspect. 
of the way governments are running today, right? This is one aspect. And this is a big aspect, but it's one aspect. You take this aspect and you multiply it over all of the different promises that governments have made to maintain streets, to maintain sidewalks, to maintain curbs, to maintain pipes and sewer systems and water towers, to keep libraries open, to fix parks, to do all these things that we've said we're going to do. There's no way we're going to do them all. That means everything's going to change. The economy is going to change. The interactions we have with our neighbors is going to change. The way we go about building our cities is going to change. The way we work is going to change. I'm not going to stand here and pretend that I know what that change is going to be. I just know it's going to be different. It's going to be different. Because we have made a ton of promises on an economic model that makes no sense. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, I apologize that we don't have the music. But like I said, I'm sitting in my nice hotel here in Vancouver and uh, just trying to get this out for you this week. Um, I'm going to be back in the office the next couple weeks and plan to do something uh, a little bit different then, too. So look for that. And uh, in the meantime, keep doing what you can to build strong towns. Take care, everybody. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, make the city! I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.